You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 24th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Ahoy, hoy. Ahoy, hoy, Evan. Am I answering the phone? What is this? <laughs> Hello. Isn't that, isn't that what Bell recommended? <laughs> yes. Everyone. Yeah. That's what he thought <laughs> yeah, that didn't the take. whole world was going to do. That's what Mr. Burns still does. Even back then, you couldn't manufacture a meme. Ah. <laughs> right? Indeed. It's got to be organic. <laughs> Absolutely. No inorganic memes. Hey, happy insulin yeah. day, everybody. It's, no. well, okay, it's not a... I have insulin. Not a real holiday, but yeah, well... Most people have insulin, luckily, because yeah. without it, we have a really difficult time processing sugar. And on July 27th, 1921, a researcher working at Toronto University, uh, Sir Frederick Banting, isolated insulin, figured out that it would be an effective treatment for diabetes, which was huge. It saved tons of lives. There's... Uh, Apparently, a direct out of a, a film sort of scene in which the researchers went into a children's hospital and started injecting kids with insulin, and one by one, they start waking up from their comas, and parents cry with joy. It might not have happened exactly like that, but it was a huge leap forward in science, and he ended up getting the Nobel Prize for it, rightfully yeah, awesome. so. Yeah, just two years later, right? 1923. Yeah, that's pretty quick, quick turnaround. Was, that's very fast. This says he's the youngest Nobel laureate in the oh. area of physiology and medicine. Mm. I did not know that. And apparently he was Canadian. Yes. Yes, he was. Something Canadians can be proud about. Congratulations, Canada. I mean, that's the kind of thing like discovering insulin, things we take absolutely for granted now. You know, it's a, you can only do something like that once. <laughs> Indeed. Wonder, are there any... To, you know, medical discoveries that big still waiting for us to discover. Of course there are, Steve. Come on. I don't know, Jay. I mean, you know, we, we, we dive deeper and deeper, but the really basic stuff is only so much of it. Once it's discovered, uh, so I, I disagree. I think you know, the things that we are so fundamental to our understanding of biology and physiology that we take them for granted now, like the heart pumps blood, there are things called diseases. These are basic concepts that people had to figure out along the way. Yeah, and, and as we go, the, the tools you need to make these discoveries get more and more complex. I mean, with this one, certainly nothing that the average person could do, taking the pancreas out of a dog and seeing what happens, but that's a hell of a lot simpler than, for instance, building the large hadron collider and smashing particles together. Well, before we move on with our news items, Jay's going to tell us about our two sponsors for this week's episode. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus. With Hulu Plus, you get total control to watch thousands of shows wherever you want, whenever you want. Right now, our listeners can get an extended free trial of Hulu Plus by going to huluplus.com forward slash SGU. Or just go to our homepage and we're going to put a link up for you guys to make it really easy. Today's show is brought to you in part by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com forward slash SGU for your free audiobook download. But Bob, you're going to tell us about another cool discovery. This is, you know, not quite as big as insulin, but you know, this is, this is getting close. This, yeah, this one really, uh, piqued my curiosity, really caught my attention. Uh, it, it looks like viruses. And I, sometimes I give viruses, uh, 
a bad rep because I because I love bacteria so much. But viruses, of course, are are pretty awesome, and I think they they just got a little bit cooler. Uh, a newly discovered virus called a Pandora virus is the biggest ever found. Now, this is both in mass and uh, the size of its genome. But not only that, uh, it may be so different that it's essentially a new form of life on Earth actually deserving its own dom- domain. And that's what really... Its uh, own domain? Uh, its own domain. <laughs> Amazing. That? I mean, that's, that's how fundamental, you know, this might be. It might be just so distinctly different from all the other domains that we know. Now, yeah. microbi- microbiologist Jean-Luc Picard, no, Jean-Michel <laughs> Clavier, <laughs> Clavier I know, what the hell, and Chantal uh, Abergel uh, and others who study them, uh, he, they actually call them NLFs for new life forms. Now, I had a bit of a beef that they called it Pandora's virus. I thought that was that was a, a bit much. And, you know, Pandora, of course, the mythical Greek figure who, who you know, opened the box and released evil um everywhere I, it just it just has such a bad connotation with it you think oh this was it's also the world in avatar yeah well that's not the first it's thing an even worse of. connotation but it also <laughs> released hope bob it remember hope was in there too ah very good okay one of the big things of course is that this thing is big it's a it's a micrometer or a thousandth of a millimeter big or long it doesn't sound like much but in terms of a virus that's Fracking huge. It's massive. Uh, c- yeah. Common viruses are about fifty to hundred nanometers, so this is ten to tw- they're t- ten to, to twenty times smaller. Uh, so this guy's really big, and the genomes is what that's what's really special about this. One point nine million to two million genes, whereas common viruses have about what ten ten genes for the kind of you know the kind of average ones. Uh, there are bigger ones, but uh, even those uh, that are that we thought were big are not not nearly as big as this guy. And it's it's the genes, like I was saying, that that's what really makes this thing so spectacular. Get this, guys. 93% of, of the Pandora virus's genes are not in any gene database. They cannot, they cannot be linked back to any lineage that we know of. Is it correct to call this thing a virus even? Yes, it does. There are certain characteristics of viruses that are kind of uh, diagnostic, and this guy's definitely got them. So it's a virus, but it's definitely a different kind of virus. Since the genome is just so different, and you know, coding for proteins, we don't even know what the hell kind of proteins this thing is even going to really make, considering its genome is ninety three percent unknown. And this is the best evidence so far, I think, that that may actually warrant a new domain classification. And uh, right now, all living things on Earth, they're part of the three highest domains. Right, guys? We've mentioned these bacteria, archaea, and uh, eukaryota. Uh, those, are, those are the three. Um, the bacteria, they're you know, single-celled, no distinct nucleus. Uh, archaea is pretty much the same, but they, ha- they have just amazing metabolisms that make them like, extremophiles. They can, they can survive amazing, amazing environments. And then there's the eukaryotes, and they have uh, – they could be one or many cells, each with its own distinct nuclei – and plants and animals, including us, of course, are, are in that group. So this might actually warrant another another domain. I don't know what they would call it, uh, but an, another domain that just just for this guy here, just just for these Pandora viruses. And uh, so the idea then is that the ancestors of the Pandora virus were very different from either the bacteria, the archaea, or the eu- eukarya that are alive today. And so, so a lot of these scientists think that, um, you know, millions and, you know, many millions or billions of years ago, there might, there may have been, you know, many different domains, m- you know, many more than three. And, uh, these Pandora viruses might, might come from one of, from one of those lost domains. Uh, that now, that now might actually be, uh, reinstated, actually. 
So one question I had, did you guys, were you guys thinking is what took so long? If these guys are gigantic, you know, for viruses anyway, what took so long to find them? And, uh, the answer is kind of interesting and kind of, and it tells us a bit about science and, and the frailty of humans in that scientists assumed viruses are small. Right, you think of a virus, you think of a of a really tiny size. Like they're like what about a hundredth this in general, about a hundredth the size of bacteria. I mean, they are tiny. You can't even use you can't even really use light microscopes to see them. Although you can see the Pandora virus with that. So they're they're so tiny that they they actually think that there's evidence that other scientists have encountered these uh, uh, viruses in the past. But they were so big, they just assumed that they were bacteria. They didn't even for a second even consider that it could be a virus. So it's just funny how you you, you have these preconceptions and you you see something that is you know could be worthy of a Nobel Prize. And uh, you just discount it because, oh, it can't be. Why, you know, why would I ever think that that would be a virus? So, so one thing to remember about these guys, despite their name, the, the scientists say that the Pandora viruses are not harmful to people. Uh, most viruses, after all, uh, infect other microbes and not people, if you just look at the averages. And, um, and actually, this might be tremendously beneficial. Not only might they have amazing new genes uh, making who knows what kind of proteins, they may have uh, an important role in nature that we're just not even aware of now. Like, for example, uh, viruses in general regulate phytoplankton. Uh, they make – and phytoplankton, of course, makes half of all the oxygen that we breathe. And, uh, and of course, they're the base of the ocean food chain. So uh, they're incredibly important. And Pandora viruses might have some fundamental role in the environment uh, similar to that. So uh, keep an eye out for that one. This one uh, looks pretty interesting. And, and I hope we get a new domain out of this. That would be really cool. That would be cool. And so the, they're different enough from other viruses to be considered – its own living organism, whereas viruses are kind of in the gray zone. So is this yeah. kind of independently replicated no. enough? Yeah, Steve, I know we talked about this earlier, and some of the earlier uh, news items were kind of alluding to that. But in fact, this is th these are true viruses in that uh, they they are not in, they are not independent. Um, they ca they can't be considered in independent life forms. So they then, why why would they warrant a domain when regular viruses don't? Because well, it, it all goes down to the genome, Steve. Their genome is gargantuan and unknown, completely unknown. Un it's not in any database that we know of. Just because so, it's a remnant of some other domain that it does no right. longer exists in the world. Right, and uh, and there's other little differences. They they um one of the ways that viruses reproduce, and th this was a little confusing to me, but one of the ways viruses reproduce is they make what they call a a box. They called it a box. I assume it's some sort of uh some sort of outer lipid shell or something, and then they fill it with uh they fill it with DNA or genetic code. And these these Pandora viruses they do both at the same time. So I what I got from that was that they build the shell and fill it with the with the genetic code at the same time. But I never knew that viruses reproduce that way because I always thought that they would just uh, take over a host cell, use a genetic machinery to make copies of themselves, and then explode the cell from within. So is that a, is that another way that they reproduce? I'm not I'm not sure. But uh, but it, it, they did cite that as a distinct difference uh, to other viruses. So it's so it's that and the and their gargantuan uh, you know genome that I th that make them so distinct. Are there larger ones to find now? Are they going to start looking? Yeah, now that now that they know what they're looking for, they, they they might find bigger ones. Absolutely. Now that they know they could actually get that big, they won't think that oh, that's just a bacteria. So they might, who knows? Mm -hmm. They might, they might even up that. Yeah, you won't see what you're not looking for. Yeah, but exactly. It's interesting to think that the early life on Earth may have had a tremendous number of domains and all this complexity, and then eventually 
boiled down to just the the three remaining ones, you know, again, possibly a remnant of a fourth. Right. God, you wonder when we'll never be able to reconstruct that early, early, early family tree of life on Earth, but not unless aliens took samples. Yeah. Or we or we master time travel. <laughs> yeah, encounter a time lord. Yeah. All right, Jay, um, tell me if I should go on a gluten-free diet. Yeah, before we get into that, I wanted to ask you guys a question. What's the first thing you think about when you hear the words aspartame or the term MSG? Sugar, like flavor Sugar enhancer. and salt. Those emails I get warning me of all the dangers. Yeah, yeah. Evan's on the right track. I mean, a lot of people, when they hear about aspartame, you know, they get a little like, oh, you know, I got to you know limit my intake. And when they hear about MSG, they think about people getting headaches and having an allergy and everything. I think there is a, a part of that, that mass hysteria around aspartame and MSG is happening with gluten. So let's... Oh, uh, yeah. So all this hubbub about gluten has been growing over the past, what, 10 years? And I'm sure, like me, you guys know people that are out there that are on a low gluten diet or a gluten-free diet. I've been asking for a long time, like, why are all these people trying to avoid gluten? Many of them think that it's causing them GI issues, and some think it's this new weight loss technique or this, you know, another one of these fad diet things going on. A lot of people don't even really understand, like, what gluten is, what's going on, what are, what's, what are the real ramifications if you were truly susceptible or, or allergic to gluten, what happens? Let me tell you what the, the experts say. The experts are saying something different, and the internet says such a giant spectrum of unproven information. Steering through this one is difficult. I'm still going to continue to read more about it because I just keep reading massively conflicting information. I thought that gluten uh, intolerance and the information about it would be a lot more clear-cut than this, but it really isn't that clear-cut. Current medical standards say that if you notice a bad reaction to gluten, showing symptoms like diarrhea, stomach upset, abdominal pain, fatigue, headaches, and bloating, these are all bad, all bad things to be happening to you, especially at the same time, then see a doctor to get tested for something called celiac disease. And do this before you start any gluten-free diet. And the reason why is getting tested involves a blood test and sometimes could even involve an intestinal biopsy. I don't even want to know how they do that. It's actually important. They just go down with a scope. It's no big deal. That's all. They go down through your stomach though, right? Yeah, they go down through your throat into your stomach, yeah. Yeah, it's no big deal. Okay. It's actually important you don't go on a gluten-free diet before you go get tested because the blood test is looking for antibodies that won't be present unless you've recently had gluten in your diet. So what happens is a lot of people go on these low-gluten diets or di gluten-free diet, and then eventually they'll get tested because they're in a lot of pain and having such a disrupt disruption to their lives, and the test comes out with a false negative. So what the hell is gluten anyway? Well, uh, basically gluten's a protein. It's formed by two subcomponents, uh, glutenin and gliadin, and they bind together and they form essentially the sticky substance. It's what give, makes dough sticky. It also is what makes bread spongy. Um, so it, it gives, it's important for, uh, the texture of a lot of foods. And it's, it's the main source of it in our diet is wheat, rye, and barley. Right. Now people, people who are gluten intolerant have celiac disease. It's also possible. It's you actually, it's actually, Jay, let me correct you there. It's actually not gluten intolerance. It's an autoimmune disease triggered by gliadin. And what they, as, so that is distinguished, in fact, from simply gluten intolerance. It's not an allergy. It's not an intolerance. It is an autoimmune disease. 
And and the test, the the main blood test that we're looking for are anti-gliadin antibodies, antibodies okay. to the gliadin. That's why if you haven't, if you don't have any gliadin, if you haven't, if you haven't eaten it recently, you won't have the antibodies, and you, you could, and that blood test could be a false negative. Yeah. So to clarify, Steve was definitely right clarifying that it's it's possible that you could have a milder case of gluten sensitivity, whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of terms out there, but it hasn't really been verified yet. It's possible that gluten sensitivity and celiac disease represent different aspects of the same condition, you know, shades of gray or whatever, but they're not sure. No one is really saying yes or no in either way. Or, you know, to be really clear, a lot of people are saying absolutely definitive yes and no, but without any science to back it up. I think it's very careful right now uh, the careful route now would be to just say that we, all the information isn't in. It's going to take a lot longer to figure this one out completely. Now, celiac disease, like Steve was saying, it's actually it's an autoimmune disorder of the small intestine. And what happens is you, it causes swelling in the bowels and inhibits nutrient absorption. And this is why if you really have it and you've got celiac disease, you know it. Because along with all those symptoms, you know, you're having – Massive problems absorbing um, nu- nutrients. You could have extreme weight loss. It's just a it's just a really disruptive disease. Yeah. Well, you know you're sick. You may not know you have celiac disease. The problem with the diagnosis is that a lot of the symptoms are nonspecific, uh, and the average length. You know how long the average time from first symptom to diagnosis. Guess how long it is? Two years. I, no, I'd say like. 10 years. 11 years. Yeah. yeah. Let's, I'd say 11 years. Yeah. yeah. There you go, Ev. Good job. Yeah. Hey, I'm right. That's the problem. I- and then you get to non-celiac <laughs> gluten sensitivity, which is what you're talking about, Jay, which is controversial. So these are even more nonspecific. You know, you don't – and you and you test negative for everything, which is why it's reasonable to doubt whether or not it actually even exists. Um, syndromes that have no diagnostic or very specific symptoms and no specific tests that indicate that they're present have a bad history of not existing when the dust settles on the science. Yeah, there's, it's, the reason why things are so vague are there could be other diseases being confused or with this or intolerance levels, allergies. You know, you could be allergic to wheat for some other reason. And then, you know, removing gluten from your diet might be removing the other thing that you're allergic to, and it really isn't celiac disease. I also found it interesting that I was reading numbers varying, like a basic question, like how many people have it? And I read between one in a hundred and one in a thousand. So it's an order of magnitude off. We, we really don't know. It's, it's weird. You know, you think, you just think, yeah, there's gluten free diet and everything's going crazy out there and everyone's doing it, but no one really has any definitive answers on it. Just treat it very seriously. Treat your symptoms very seriously. Go to a professional. Let them do the blood test. Let them test you. You know, and then you'll start the, that chain of tests that they'll do to help you figure out what the problem is. You could also test, um, your diet by dieting. You could test, you know, what you might be allergic to. Now, one thing that they were saying is be careful. Don't let your own changes in diet fool you. If you start eating a more healthy diet, you might feel better. And it might not be you actually treating celiac disease or some other allergy. It might just be you feel better because you're eating healthier food now. So very complicated stuff. I just want to throw in also that naturopaths have been increasingly making these claims that gluten is causing diseases and even autism. So the BS is out there and it's hitting strong. So do your research and, you know, talk to your friends and family about it before they get sucked into this gluten-free diet craze. Yeah, it definitely doesn't cause autism. That data is in. 
There's no correlation with autism. But there's also um, the parents of autistic kids who have severe digestion issues and are trying to solve them by cutting out gluten. And I'm not sure what the research says on that, if enough research has even been done on it. The research that exists shows no link with, with the gluten and mm -hmm. autism. The problem with these fad diagnoses that get a lot of press and then, you know, sort of take on a life of their own is that, of course, the claims and the hype go way beyond the evidence. You know, what we could say at this point in time is celiac disease definitely exists, but, you know, it's uncommon uh, and it needs to be specifically tested for. This non-celiac gluten sensitivity, controversial, may not exist. I'm very suspicious of it for the reasons that I stated, but we need to do more research to really put that one to bed. But patients who have nonspecific symptoms they latch on to the fad diagnosis, whether it's chronic Lyme disease or chronic fatigue syndrome or candida hypersensitivity and now and now this gluten sensitivity. And then they, you know, they take some steps to treat that. They get some placebo effect or as you said, Jay, like they go on a healthier diet and feel better shock. Then that can, you know, confirms the diagnosis for them. Uh, but they're, they may have a real underlying diagnosis that's being missed because they're being distracted by and going down the pathway of this fad diagnosis. So it does cause a lot of harm in my experience. Uh, and it is important to, you know, again, not just latch onto a fad and not go way beyond the evidence. But I'll tell you right now, if you have celiac disease, you have something seriously wrong with you and you know it. Like you, a yeah. tiny little bit of gluten will set you off terribly. Like this isn't, it's it's on or off when it comes to celiac disease. Yeah, once you're diagnosed and you're on a gluten-free diet and then some gluten sneaks into your diet, you definitely have a relapse. Yeah, th th that's unequivocal. You know, the the celiac disease is a known entity, it's well understood, totally unequivocal. It's the non-celiac gluten that's, you know, very dodgy. All right, Rebecca, uh while we're on the biology theme here, so I guess our third biology news item in a row, you're going to tell us about how stuff dies. Slowly and painfully. <laughs> it, depends what, it depends what kind of meds you're on. True. I think the last, I could be wrong about this, but the last news story I talked about on SGU might have been that one where you take Tylenol to get over your anxiety about death. If so, you know. <laughs> so pop related, them now, folks. Pop your Tylenol now. So yeah, a really cool study was just published in PLOS Biology, Plus Biology. What these researchers did was they studied worms dying and they believe that the, that worms share a very similar biochemical process that may relate directly to how humans die. They were studying worms because it's very easy for them to follow cell death. Um, apparently, when a worm cells die, it emits a fluorescent blue light. And so you can follow this light as, as worms die. And what they found was that when someone is dying, the example in the, uh, that the researcher gave was, um, a person, or I should say the example that was in the article I read, uh, was, um, a, a person is in the desert. They're suffering from dehydration. They don't just suddenly die. Um, what happens is there is a wave of death that moves through their body as cell by cell dies. 
so that's what they've seen happen in these worms, at least. And it's pretty cool because it might have implications for helping people who are dying of quote unquote old age. They might be able to, doctors might one day be able to take note of where the wave of death is and stop it in its tracks somehow or even somehow reverse it. So it's a, it's a cool study that, uh, has some really positive possible implications for stopping death. <laughs> Not entirely, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting to think about, you know, you have biological death where the organism is dead, you know, the heart's not beating, et cetera, but the cells are still alive. And then, you know, cell populations die at different rates depending on the, the kind of tissue. Uh, but th this is interesting. This adds this bit of, you know, the wave of cell death occurring because, you know, eventually all the cells are going to die. And the, the sort of the final um, thing that happens when cells are dying is the influx of calcium, which causes the cell to undergo what we call apoptosis, meaning it just it dies. So when you have cells dying, that sets off this domino effect, sort of chain reaction that causes the cells next to it to die, I guess, because it's so dramatically changing the environment. That that could, I guess, explain why it, it moves in a wave like that. Um, but the thing, you know, you mentioned that this could have, you know, positive implications for, you know, treating old age or whatever. I, I found that bogus, to be honest with you. The, the generic, um, structure of these kinds of articles is, here's some basic science that's interesting. Now, how could this have an implication for a practical application, you know? And they will force that no matter how far afield they have to go. The notion that because we see this wave of cell death occurring, this is somehow going to allow us to in any way reverse the process or stop the process or somehow prevent cells from dying of old age to me is absurd. Well, that was actually, I, I probably should have been more clear. When I said that, that was, that was me being optimistic, not the researcher. The researcher actually does say outright, like, they can, so they were able to stop that calcium signaling when it came to something like starvation, but when it came to old age, they were not able to stop it. And so he thinks that that's because there are a lot of things happening at once, but that this might be one key piece of what's happening when you're dying of old age. So yeah, I should have been more clear about that. Right, right. Although I do think the article itself is a little bit more, again, they're, they're sort of straining that how would this, you know, have some practical application bit, which yeah. I I find often is forced and gratuitous. You know, it doesn't really just just say tell us the basic science. You know, we don't you know we don't need to say because you know anytime you discover anything about biology, you can generically say this knowledge may someday lead to the ability to medications or to a treatment that could somehow cure diseases related to this. But of course, it's always generically true. You don't need to say it. But they have to make that connection. It's like journalism 101. It gets yeah. annoying sometimes though. Well, one uh, of the things I, I liked about this was that it, it really underscores the idea that, that death isn't a point. It's a process. It takes yeah. time. 
So a lot of times when I, you know, you see somebody die in a movie and they close their eyes and, and you think, <laughs> oh, he's dead. Like, no, he's not actually dead. You've got a little bit of time where you could actually save them. If you had, you know, extraordinary health care, you could actually save them at this point. And yeah, I, but how I does think, that develop the plot? You know, I know, I know. But I mean, so what do you got, Steve? Like when, when oxygen stops flowing to the brain, you probably only have like, what, 10 minutes? Yeah, you got minutes. Yeah, yeah. you got minutes for that. So that, that's not well. But actually, it take quite a while for all the cells in your body to die. But that doesn't really matter if you're... Yeah. Brain cells are dead. But. Well, once your brain's been uploaded, uploaded, you know, yeah. it'll be fine. You can just <laughs> way to go, Rebecca. Nice. Yeah. What I love about people dying in the movies is when they do CPR <laughs> for literally twenty seconds. Yeah, I know they That'll... have to do that because you can't watch somebody do CPR for twenty minutes, which is what really would happen. You know, twenty to forty minutes before you give up. I mean, or at least just do like the time splice thing where you sort of like show yeah, yeah, it's yeah. 40 minutes later. Right. But literally it's like Fade from one scene three, another, yeah. three, four compressions, 20 seconds later. Oh, we did everything we He's could. Steve, Come don't on. people pass out too before they die? Like a lot of times like that big dramatic, they're closing their eyes and they die thing. And a lot of times it occurs to me, like, what if they just passed out? Maybe they're on their way to dying or just simply are unconscious and they're not dead. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, for, for a lot of processes like that. Um, you would fall unconscious, go into a coma, and then die. That may happen very, very quickly, but you're right. You 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 don't necessarily go from conscious to instantly dead. Yeah, you're right. Are you allowed to say a soliloquy before you die like most characters yeah. in the movies do? Once again, we're going to tell you about this week's sponsor, Hulu Plus. I love Hulu Plus. I stream it through my PS3, and I love it because I get to watch new episodes of shows like Parks and Recreation as they come out. Well, you stream it through your game console, huh? Yep. It's very yeah, easy. I, I used my Xbox the first time. That was, uh, and it was before I got the Red Ring of Death, so. I get it right through my TV. Yeah, me too. And that, that's, I think, one of the inspired things about it is that you can get it so many different ways. You know, you don't have to go out there and get a specific box to do this specific task. It's either already on, you know, on your, your internet capable TV or your, or your gaming console. It's, it's really an awesome idea. Not only a great idea, but when you start Going through the list of shows that you get, my gosh, I mean, how many of your favorite shows happen to be on Hulu Plus? So many of them. I had a hard time figuring out where to start. Did you guys ever see the uh, paintball episode on Community? Yeah, that's my favorite episode. It's, oh, it's great. Hang on, I'm writing that one down. Paintball. Episode. And there was a follow-up <laughs> episode to it as well. Yeah, so for podcast listeners, you're going to get a two-week trial. That's better than just any regular off-the-street listeners. And also, it's for $7.99 a month, you get unlimited shows. So why don't you guys just go check out the listings that they have. I'm sure that there are shows on there that you would love. It's, it is a fantastic service. And don't forget to get your extended free trial. Just go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU or... Go to the SGU homepage, and you'll see a link for Hulu Plus right there. Evan, you're going to tell us about the longest-running experiment in history. Oh, gosh. And our its feet tired. <laughs> so oh, this, this one was reported all over the place, but uh, credit for this SGU news report will go, will go to NewScientist.com. One of the world's longest-running experiments climaxed. A couple weeks ago, when a finger-sized bulb of pitch separated from its parent bulk and dropped into a beaker. This experiment is called the pitch drop experiment. It's a long-term experiment which measures the flow of a piece of pitch over many, 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 many years. 
Pitch is a name for any number of viscoelastic solid polymers. Pitch can be made from petroleum products or plants. The petroleum-derived pitch is also called bitumen or asphalt. And pitch produced from plants is also known as resin. So, the one we have here is the petroleum-based one, asphalt version of the experiment. And what made this event so newsworthy is that it's the first time the event has ever been witnessed or recorded, as, it, as the drop actually separates. And But why? Why is this the first time that it's ever been recorded? Well, because pitch is a substance that is hard like a solid would be, and it'll break into pieces upon impact with a sturdier object, like a hammer. However, unlike a solid, it has flow to it, much like a liquid. So this is an extremely slow-flowing material. So slow, it takes roughly a decade or more for one drop to form and fully detach just by the pull of the Earth's gravity. You got to go back to 1927 when this experiment was set up by Professor Thomas Parnell at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. Parnell poured a heated sample of pitch into a sealed funnel and allowed it to settle for three years. And then in 1930, the seal at the neck of the funnel was cut, allowing the pitch to start flowing. A glass dome covers the funnel. It's placed on display outside a lecture theater, and there it sat, and there it continues to sit as they counted the drops, but they were never able to actually witness it as it happened. Now, on November 28th, 2000, of that particular experiment, the eighth drop was recorded, which earned the experiment a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's longest continuously running laboratory experiment, and it is still running to this day. In October 2005, uh, John Mainstone and the late Thomas Parnell, John Mainstone is the fellow who's overseeing the experiments now, uh, they were awarded the Ig Nobel Prize in Physics for the pitch drop experiment. thought that was an interesting note. But that was the classic pitch drop experiment. In other words, that's the oldest one that's been running. But there are other versions of the same experiment that are running. And the one that was caught on camera is one that was performed at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. And this one has been running since 1944. And it was just July 11th, 2013. A professor's webcam caught the historic moment. And he and some of his colleagues were able to measure the drip's development over time to figure out that the pitch that they had in their particular uh, device was 2 million times more viscous than honey Whoa. and 2 billion times more viscous than water. Whoa. Whoa. That's, that's, that's a viscous, boy. Yeah, so the, the longest-running experiment is the one in Brisbane, but that one did not have a witnessed drop. The one that was witnessed was the was – one that's been running for a long time, 69 years. Right. Uh, I guess they were in the competition, and they, and they missed the one from 2000 at Brisbane. They missed seeing it. Like, the guy stepped yes. out for 15 minutes he, for a cup of tea he, or something. Don't they have a camera? I don't understand. There was a mechanical failure right oh. at the time of the drip. Oh, no. Bigfoot? On it. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> the elusive drip. You Holy cannot see the crap. drip. Yeah, the challenge of this experiment is keeping eyes on the experiment for decades. Hey, Evan, uh, sometimes I get so bound up, I, I poop like that. Uh, that that's, oh, that's very unfortunate. My. God. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> Jay, you got your own pitch drop experiment. You know it, man. It's always going. Now, Every if you day. guys have a minute, I was able to look up a few interesting facts about pitch. And I wanted to give each one of you, each four of you, one statement about pitch. And I want you to tell me if you think it's right or wrong. 
Here you go, Bob. This one's for you. Single-celled organisms, known as archaea, live in the crevices of asphalt, and they breathe with the aid of metals instead of breathing oxygen. True or false? Well, if they're archaea, yeah, they can do almost anything. I'll go. I'll say <laughs> true. True. You are correct. Space.com. Right. Look it up, folks, if you're interested. Uh, Jay, this one's for you. The term pitch black derives from the black color of pitch. True or false? True. Correct. You are true. You are correct. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. True. You are true. You are true. That's easy. That's easy. Uh, Rebecca, <laughs> the word pitch in this context that we're talking about derives from none other than Christian Fletcher, while on Pitcairn Island, discovered a small lake with natural asphalt, and he called it pitch for short, deriving it from the island's name. True or false? They've all been true so far, so let's go with true. Ah, this one's false. I made the whole thing no. up. No. <laughs> made it up from whole cloth. So nothing about that was correct, but good. good. So where does the name derive from then? Oh, actually, it's a Latin word, pix, P-I-X. That is the oldest sort of reference to the, uh, that's the, that's the etymology. All right, Steve, you get one. You get the last one. Ready? Okay. The largest natural deposit of asphalt in the world is in a place called the Pitch Lake. Sure, why not? Uh, that is true, yes. The Pitch Lake in southwest area of Trinidad, it is 114 acres in size, and which is roughly the size of Vatican City. So mm -hmm. there you go. Everything and probably nothing you ever <laughs> wanted to know about pitch. I just put pics into Google Translate from Latin to English. Yes. And it says pitch. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so it's we've so identified it's... a... Three dates left. <laughs> Recursive loop. <laughs> All right. So are you guys aware of the fact that people yes. who reject conspiracy theories are actually more psychologically unhinged than conspiracy theorists? Really? <laughs> uh, I am. Hmm. I know now. Oh, boy. Yeah. I'm in trouble. No, that's not, that's, that's not actually true. But there was an article published on Press TV, which is an Iranian publication apparently, arguing that um, psychological studies show – that people who reject conspiracy theories or who accept the standard conspiracy theory, which is how they, they try to twist things, uh, actually are more, are, they are the paranoid cranks, not the so-called oh conspiracy theorists. Yeah, okay. So yeah, this is a perfect example of bizarre world. Just turn everything on its head, you know, to suit your ideology. The article was written by, Dr. Kevin Barrett, who has a PhD in, he says he's a PhD Arabist Islamologist. What he did was he completely misrepresented various psychological studies in order to arrive at his conclusion. There was a recent study published uh, by Wood and Douglas, and they were looking at the comments to articles about conspiracy theories like the notion that 9-11 was an inside job. And they came up with a number of conclusions, all of which pretty much support the standard view of conspiracy theorists. And somehow Barrett turned everything around and tried to make it seem like, you know, the, the paper came to conclusions that it in fact didn't. Like, for example, the psychology paper looked at the number of comments who were either supporting or contradicting the conspiracy, but they, they looked only at persuasive comments, like the number of comments that were trying to persuade somebody that the conspiracy is either real or that the conspiracy is fake, and the number of persuasive comments that were pro-conspiracy outnumbered 
the number of persuasive comments that were anti-conspiracy. This did not count the number of comments that were not persuasive. So if somebody was just saying, oh, those conspiracy theorists are nuts, that wouldn't have counted, right? Barrett concluded from this that the pro-conspiracy position is actually mainstream and that the anti-conspiracy position is in the minority, which is just blatantly not supported by the data that he was citing. The First of all, if you look at all the comments, they were more pro um, conventional view, not pro conspiracy. Um, and, you know, looking at number of comments is not a good way to evaluate general belief in the population, right? right? Cause you could just be measuring the motivation and fanaticism of the pro conspiracy people. Yeah. And the, you know, I mean, skeptics are a unique bunch in that we are the only people who feel like conspiracy theorists are worth answering. Yeah. I, the general population thinks that the fringe beliefs are so fringe, who cares what those people think? And does anybody really think that anyway? You know, yeah, it's a good, cares. it's a good example of confirmation bias in that if you ignore them, then they could say, we're correct because we're the only ones talking about it. And if you contradict them, they say, we're correct because you're bothering to contradict us. We mm-hmm. must be on to something. So there's like nothing you can do that won't confirm that their view is correct. So it's, it's just all confirmation bias. In fact, the, the um, repeating uh, Dr. Barrett's article was uh, so prominent on the on the web. You know, conspiracy theorists just went crazy reposting uh, his, you know, m- misinterpretation of these psychological studies that one of the original authors, Dr. Wood, Mike Wood, you know, wrote a, a blog post on, uh, the psychology of conspiracy theories where he detailed all the misinterpretations of his own data where he said specifically, I analyzed the data. There were more, you know, anti than pro conspiracy comments. Uh, another thing that he did was to just extrapolate crazily from the data. So one thing that they that was a little interesting that they found was that if you look at these persuasive comments, the anti-conspiracy comments tended to be more hostile than the pro-conspiracy comments, which is interesting. Barrett interprets that, you know, the conspiracy theory interprets that as, well, see, the people who are supporting the conventional view, they're the paranoid cranks because their comments are more hostile. Whereas you can al- alternately interpret that, that it's just really infuriating to, to <laughs> debate with conspiracy theorists. But that is a cautionary tale for skeptics. And we've talked about this on the show. It is really challenging to go up against pseudoscientists of any stripe, whether they're creationists or deniers or conspiracy theorists and not get frustrated. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, if if it had been the conspiracy theorists who were more hostile, then the finding would have been something along the lines of, oh, well, you know, these people have the correct position and therefore have more fire behind them more or passion. something. Yeah. yeah, more passion. So exactly. Again, it's a can't win situation. But I do think the lesson, there's still a lesson in there for skeptics in that we're on a very difficult, almost a no-win scenario where you have to be passionate, but if if you express that passion with, you know, hostility or with too much sarcasm or whatever, then you are portrayed as the person with an ideological axe to grind. You're the fanatic suddenly. 
Um, and this happens to every skeptic I know. This happens to me. And I like have a reputation of being extremely calm and level-headed. And yet you can't let the slightest bit of passion creep into your writing without somebody saying, oh, you're pretty worked up over there, Dr. Novella. <laughs> you know, what's your ideology? <laughs> um, Calm down, pal. You have a heart attack. Yeah, it's like it's, again, it's more confirmation bias. So it's tough. I mean, it is kind of a no-win scenario. But you have to at least be aware of it. And if you're trying to be persuasive or depending on what your venue and your goals are, you may have to just not let yourself get worked up. Don't get into it if you're not. If you don't feel you can do that, I mean, don't go into it and then be shocked at how infuriating the other side is. <laughs> you know, that's just naive. They're going to be infuriating. They're going to just completely say things that are wrong. They're going to twist logic to turn reality on its head. And if you're not, if you get, if you get blindsided by that, you will, in fact, probably get infuriated. I just did uh, a search for Arabist Islamologist. First, yep. first 10 results. Guess who comes up? Yeah, this one guy. This one guy. Kevin Barry. He's the only one in the, in the universe. Well, maybe it's a weird translation though. I mean, maybe he's an anthropologist of some sort. And since this was a, did you say it was a Czech newspaper? Iranian. Iranian. Oh, Iranian. Maybe it's just a weird translation. I don't know. So one more point. There's so much to pick apart in this guy's article, but there's one more thing I wanted to talk about. He actually, again, one of the hallmarks of a pseudoscientist is always trying to turn um, negatives into positives, right? Turn vices into virtues. So he says that, well, conspiracy theorists are honest in that we're not trying to defend a particular theory. We're just casting doubt on the standard explanation. Whereas the people who are defending the standard explanation are defending a specific yeah. position, you know, that then, you know, then gives the straw man of, oh, you know, seven, 17, uh, untrained individuals pulled off 9-11, all being coordinated by some guy in a cave in Afghanistan, which is and kind of an argument. They try to make it seem ridiculous, you know, the, the standard explanation, which becomes little more than an argument from personal incredulity. They're the real you know, skeptics, right? Yeah, they're the real skeptics. So uh, on that point, on the argument for personal incredulity, it's actually – it wasn't that hard for bin Laden. But bin Laden didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to coordinate in real time what was actually happening. This was an independent cell that pretty much knew what they were doing. And you know, nothing was required beyond what could be accomplished with cell phones. So it's, it's not at all a stretch that al-Qaeda you know, was somehow pulling the strings from caves in Afghanistan. That's just a silly argument. But the, the, the core here is that um, he's trying to say their position is superior because they're not defending a specific position. But that's actually a primary you know, logical flaw in the conspiracy theorists because they, they're not – they don't have to put forward a cogent or coherent theory. All they have to do is just cast doubt on the standard explanation, even if they do so in a way that is internally inconsistent. You know, like right. the, it's like exactly the what defense. the creationists do. Yeah. Holocaust right. deniers and, do it. And, and the important thing is that any complex phenomenon will have the weird little anomalies yeah. that, you, that you that are just bizarre that you can't necessarily explain, but don't necessarily you know cast doubt on the primary you know the primary belief. So it's always easy, you know, relatively easy to find these little weird things, and that doesn't mean that you know you're not yeah you, yeah you're not putting forward a theory at all. You're just like poking holes. But then they do, you know. So it's all being very coy. They say, "I'm just asking questions." 
You know, oh, isn't God. it odd? Isn't this odd that this happened? And yeah, it's just, it, it's, uh, it's very coy. It's all completely disingenuous in my opinion. Right. But he's specifically, yeah, he's specifically trying to turn that into a virtue in his article. Bizarro world. Uh, worth a read, you know, good to, to get inside the mind of a conspiracy theorist and see how profoundly your ideology and worldview can influence how you interpret everything. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to get in that mind. <laughs> All right, Bob, no one asked for a quickie, so I'm going to have to do it. We're at the end of the Oh, wow, items. Bob. You got like jilted this episode. I was going to, I was going to get, uh, but, uh, well, thank you, Steve. This is your quickie with Bob. And uh, guys, I'm sure you, some of you have seen this. NASA recently took advantage of a rare alignment and released an amazing image from the Cassini spacecraft. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. The uh, mm. the upper two the upper two thirds of the picture are dominated by this. At least the picture that I saw, the dark limb of the planet Saturn eclipsing the sun. So it's a, so it's very dark. And then of course you can see Saturn's gorgeous rings. And then the bottom part shows uh, what's being unoriginally called a pale blue dot. Everybody is saying that. You know, just think of something different. Which of course is our home planet Earth and Moon, because it's kind of it's it's so far away that you can't really distinguish the the Earth and Moon unless you zoomed in really really tight. No, but, so I, it, but I saw some zoomed-in pictures where you see two dots, and I'm assuming one is the Earth and the other is the Moon. Yes, like I said, unless you zoomed in. But if you looked yeah. at the picture where you were really enjoying Saturn and the rings and the Earth, you really weren't going to see both no. the Earth and the Moon. So, um, and it's absolutely gorgeous, isn't it? It's, it? I think it's one of the coolest astronomy pictures ever taken. It's really, you know, S- Saturn is just an amazingly gorgeous object. And then to, to see the, the Earth right there, uh, it's just so beautiful. And, um, and did you guys know that it's actually part... This is actually only a small part of a really huge 33-image mosaic that's going to show all of Saturn and its rings in a, in a beautiful red, green, blue filtered light. So keep an eye out for that. They, I think NASA will be releasing that in a little while. And uh, it's just a, just a beautiful picture. And if you haven't seen it, go Google it right now because it's really cool. Uh, so this has been your Quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you too. All right. Thanks, Bob. All right, Evan, it's finally time to get fully caught up on Who's That Noisy now that we are in our post-TAM recovery. Couldn't have said it better myself, Steve. So turn back your clocks to episode 416 and remember this particular noisy. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and uranium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, and americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, ruthenium, vanadium, and anthium, and osmium, and acetine, and radium, and golden protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. That was awesome. <laughs> I love that clip. And it goes on, but, you know, just would have been too long to play the entire thing. And, uh, you know, the one and only Daniel Radcliffe, Mr. Harry Jay. Potter himself. Harry Potter. That's right. <laughs> the That's Harry the- Potter. That's that. I. You know what? I bet you he's cool just from that. <laughs> yeah, right. I think so. I mean, who, that- who would sit that? Who would sit down and do that? And then he turns it into a song. Like, did he actually make up that melody? No, and everything? no, he, no. Other other people have made up that. Have done that song before. Yeah. I think he just memorized yeah. it. The the original song is called "The Elements." It was written in 1959. Uh, when we only knew about 102 of the elements. Um, oh, written, back in the dark ages. <laughs> written yeah. by Tom Lehrer. And uh, he goes ahead and recites the names of all the chemical elements known at the time. And uh, yeah, Daniel Radcliffe. So, And who got it? Well, about 8,000 people got it. I've yeah. been so inundated with emails and uh, <laughs> incorrect answers. And we yeah. drew in the name Fred Slota, S-L-O-T-A, from the message boards. What's uh, the matter, Slota? <laughs> Or it could be Schlota, but 
I'm not sure. Congratulations, Fred. You go into the drawing at the end of the year of all the Who's That Noisy winners, and you might be joining us for a segment of science or fiction. To fully catch up, we have one more from episode 417. 417! Which I will play for you. Listen, all magic is is scientific principles presented like mystical hoodoo, which is fun, but it's sort of irresponsible. I got your magic right here, okay? Does that sound familiar to anybody? It does. Yeah, that's Adventure Time. That's Princess Bubblegum. Oh, awesome. (laughs) Princess Bubblegum, indeed, from Adventure Time. Yeah, my daughter's really into that show. Uh, This particular episode of Adventure Time was called Wizards Only, Fools, uh, in which the synopsis reads that Starchy asks Princess Bubblegum to use magic to cure him of his sickness, but she does not believe in magic. In a universe with tons and tons of magic. Yeah, and candy. So... (laughs) <laughs> and other things, exactly. <laughs> well, still, you details, know. You, details. Yeah, you find, you know, little golden nuggets here and there, but you got to dig deep sometimes. So, uh, also, lots of correct answers for this one. Uh, the name we drew this for this particular episode, Doug Pace, P A I C E. You are the winner for episode 417. So, congratulations. Your name goes into the hat, as they say. All right, Evan. So, what do you got for this week? All right. This week, we have a puzzle. Here we go. You are a detective with a specialty in deciphering coded messages. During an investigation, you stumble upon a piece of paper which reads 0.7734, comma, next line, 57718378185137183718, period. And then the next line reads 173. And that's it. Those are all numbers, by the way. Not written out words of the numbers. They are the numbers themselves. Now, being the world-class detective you are, you have immediately decoded the message. So, what's the message? All right, good one, Evan. No idea. What is that? (laughs) Should I give a hint? Nah, our listeners are smart enough. They'll figure it out. Yep. And if you want to see it so you have a better uh, idea of what you're uh, looking at or you need a repeating of it in any ways... Not only can you hear it here, but also go to the message boards, sguforums.com. I'll be posting that puzzle there for you to uh, ponder and give your answer to. Or you can send us your answer to the email address, wtn at theskepticsguide.org. Good luck, all detectives. It'll also be in the show notes, and I also put uh, that in the in the metadata of the MP3 file for the podcast under lyrics. So if you have an iPod, you can just could read along all right thanks ev so uh we're going to do one email this week this is actually a name that logical fallacy i think we're overdue for one of those Mm -hmm. this one comes from chris who writes i have been listening to the sgu for a few years and i am having a bit of a problem in my workplace there are a few employees that do substandard work when i mention it to them they almost always brush it off as well i'm not perfect like you or no one can be as good as you are Recently, I said to one of them, well, that is a logical fallacy, specifically an ad hominem. One of the persons I said this to responded, no, it isn't, because those always have to be negative. Never mind that I don't think they said that I am perfect nor good. Seriously, it got me thinking, does an ad hominem have to be negative in nature? I view you to be a kind of de facto logical fallacy clearinghouse, and I'm interested in your knowledge view on this topic. 
Also, and this will sound completely ridiculous, the last two times this conversation has come up in the workplace was in regards to the other person's abilities to close and lock a door before leaving at the, at, as the last person out of the building, specifically in their lack of being able to complete such a cyclopean task. For further information, I work with people who have graduated from at least four years of college and can apparently feed themselves. Thank you very much, and I apologize if I have taken up much of your time. Okay, interesting. So what do you guys think about that? Is it an ad hominem logical fallacy to say, well, I screwed up, but that's only because nobody could be as perfect as you are? Um, or do does the ad hominem logical fallacy always have to involve a negative comment? Well, no, an ad hominem does not always need to be negative. I mean, the, the definition is simply... To the person, right? Yeah, to the person. So it's it's someone who's saying that you're... They're, they're arguing your, your person and not your, your argument. Mm-hmm. So they could say you're wrong because you have blue eyes and that would be an ad hominem. Yeah. It doesn't have to be even, negative. That's right. Even though it's not negative. And, and there's also the idea of the opposite of ad hominem. I think it's called a pro homine, homine, H-O-M-I-N-E. How would you pronounce that? Hominé. Pro homine. Possibly. Homina, 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 And that's, <laughs> it, c- celebrity endorsements are used that a lot, of, obviously. Um, and it's, it's kind of related to or maybe exactly the same as, uh, what's called appeal to false authority. And that's yeah. called mm-hmm. argumentum ad, uh, vericundium. And that, that's, uh, that, that means that you're giving credence, you're giving credence to someone just because of who, of who, of who he is. So that, so there's yeah. that. And then I also came up with, um, and now I'm not even sure how much of an ad hominem that even is. I mean, what about the idea of a, the faulty, like a faulty comparison, a logical fallacy? And then that's, um, Comparing one thing to another that's really not related in order to make the one thing look more or less desirable than it really is. So because he's kind of, the person's kind of comparing himself with this, you know, with this other guy who he's declaring is perfect. And that's kind of like a faulty comparison. It's just not really related. So I kind of thought of that as well. Yeah. I thought of it more as a straw man argument. Because when did he ever say he was perfect? He probably never made that claim. I can't imagine Chris doing that. So this employee is projecting something that Chris has, you know, apparently either said or professed at some point. I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I mean, if it's based upon a claim that he's alleging Chris made, then you could portray it as a straw man. But I don't think that's the case here. But I mean, you're right, though, Evan. It is. Um, it's a false premise. You know, the premise is the uh, there's a major hidden premise here, and that is that you would have to be as good as or as perfect as this other person in order to be able to complete the task that's being asked of you, which, you know, Chris seems to take some pleasure in telling us that it's something as simple as just, if you're the last one out of the building, lock the door. And the failure to do so, you know, the, the excuse is, well, I'm not perfect. And then adding on top of that, so that's the, the, the faulty premise, then adding that top, on top of that, it's, it's kind of trying to turn it around and saying, well, you are expecting me to be, to be perfect like you are. And that's mm-hmm. an unreasonable request. So there's another sort of false assumption in there, right? And then, and ultimately it's, a, it's just a giant non sequitur, which, you know, a non sequitur just is this, like the generic logical fallacy, which just means it doesn't follow. So yeah. all logical fallacies are non sequiturs. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting to sort of portray this as an ad hominem. It, it's it's a weird one though. I don't think it's a it's not a direct ad hominem. He's not saying he's not saying you're wrong because you're perfect. Yeah, 
He's just saying that the, my excuse for not doing this is because I'm not as good as you are. But th- yeah. there's the implication is that you're expecting too much of me. So I think it there, there's so these implied false premises, which does get you a little close to a straw man if if he's framing it as this is what your position is. And I don't think that's what Chris's position is. It's just I want you to do some very basic stuff that a person of your education and your job description should be reasonably expected to do. You know, this whole thing brings up an interesting idea whether or not someone knows what they're saying is wrong. Like in this search, in this circumstance, it's just an excuse. Yeah. I think the person saying it knows it's an excuse and they're trying to, in a crafty way, try to turn it around on, on this guy, right? But, you know, when you do, when you commit other logical fallacies, I think a lot of them, the vast majority of them, people are just simply not aware that their logic is poor. Mm-hmm. So it's different here. It's not really the same. Doesn't really feel like a logical fallacy to me. Well, I mean, it still could be a logical fallacy, to, to, regardless of your insight. I, I think you're right, though, Jay. Sometimes people commit a logical fallacy because they think the logic is actually valid when it isn't. At other times, people are just saving face. They're just making up stupid shit because it's better than saying, "You know what? You're right. I was a complete ass. I should have locked the building." And even when, and this is if you read the book, why how we know it isn't so. They, they discuss this. What the psychological research shows is that people will make ridiculous face-saving excuses even when they know them to be completely transparent. So if you, if you are left wondering, does that person know how transparent they are? The answer to that question is probably yes. But it's still preferable to be transparently face-saving than to directly confront your failings at least, you know, in the default mode of human behavior. And that yeah. seems to be what's happening here. I think this I think these other people know that their logic is crap, but they don't care. It's something to say other than you're right, I was an irresponsible ass. Or I'm just lazy and I don't <laughs> care. I mean what else are you gonna say? I mean there's really no yeah. ex doesn't sound like there's really a viable excuse. So you just make up something no matter how ridiculous it is. That was a good, that was a fun one. Thanks, Chris. We have a second sponsor for this week's show, one that we've had before, Audible.com. Hey guys, you know, Audible has a ton of great books, including Steve's books. Well, they're, they're audio lectures, uh, two 24, 30 minute lecture series, uh, Your Deceptive Mind and Medical Myths. Yeah. What do you mean two 24, 30 minute? So they're 24 lectures each 30 minutes in length. Oh, that's a lot of content. So it's 12 hours of content for each one. Yeah. And what do you talk about? I talk about, uh, medical myths in the first one. And then the second one is called Your Deceptive Mind. Uh, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills, which is basically a primer on scientific skepticism. Awesome. Yeah, so this week's show is is in part brought to you by Audible Podcast, and you could go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash SGU, and you could also go to our homepage and click the link on there to help support the show. Audible is fantastic. Guys, I've been a member for probably close to 11 or 12 years. I, I, w- I remember Whoa. downloading and listening to books before there was an iPhone, before there was there were iPods, I had to buy like a first gen MP3 player. It was called a Rio, and it was like it was oh, a revelation. Yeah. It was, it was a revelation. That. You could have multiple books on this one thing, and they've got now. Of course, you could. It's so easy now. You could just download an app, your Audible app, and then you could actually you could actually sh- buy and stream a book right onto your iPhone or or. Not just your iPhone, your iPad, your Android, Kindle oh, Fire, yeah, absolutely iPod. I mean. 
if you have an electronic device, chances are it's going to work. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've got like 150 books in my library, and I could just listen to anyone at any time. It's fantastic. All right, Bob, they have over 100,000 titles, so your 150 books, quick, is what percentage of their total yeah, catalog? Tiny. All right, Bob, you're quick with the numbers. Perfect, perfect. So listen, you can get a free audiobook if you go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash SGU and sign up. You can get a free book to check it out. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Yes. Yep. All right, here we go. I think I got three interesting items this week. Item number one, a recent study finds that occasional marijuana use increases alertness, probably through improved sleep quality. Item number two, scientists have discovered that the herpes simplex virus is packed under pressure eight times higher than a car tire and uses that pressure to blast its DNA into the <laughs> nucleus of cells. Oh Item God. number three, a new analysis finds <laughs> that 2,000-year-old techniques for gold and silver plating produced results that cannot be achieved even with modern technology. Really, Steve? <laughs> Jay, you were our sole winner last week and our wise-ass this week, so why don't you go first? Yeah, so, yeah, it was very interesting. At the live event at TAM, I won science or fiction and everybody else lost. Uh, on stage, wow. that is. Yeah, it was awesome. Not Rebecca, a, not in the like, seriously, you would you would have been, like, yeah. crying. You were so happy for me. <laughs> All right, so... <laughs> so uh, this whole one about the herpes thing, like blowing its DNA all over people's faces and stuff, like Steve, seriously, like it's not that's not happening. That's the fake. Okay, that's it. You don't even need to talk about the other two. That's it's all I need to do. All right, Bob. All right, so number one, um, increased alertness from smoking weed. I'm not. I'm just not seeing that. Improved sleep quality. Does it make sense? I'm not buying that one. So the second one, uh, so herpes simplex. So the virus itself is packed under pressure eight times more than a car tire. So I'm having trouble picturing this, Steve. Um, so what, the, the viruses together or what's actually packed against what? The virus itself inside the virus is under high pressure. Blast its DNA. That's just sounding just out of whack. I'm not into the nucleus. Shit. Um, let's go to three. Um, <laughs> let's see. 2000 year old technique for gold and silver plating produced, not matched with modern technology. That's always a bit of an eye opener. But I mean, I can imagine that they found some process of using these metals in conjunction, really making something, uh, you know, a beautiful plating. I can kind of see that the other ones are, are the ones that are, that are tougher. One and two are good. I just can't. They just both don't seem right to me. No, I'm just not seeing, you know, pressure density. That didn't, viruses don't use that ability to uh, to hijack genetic machinery. Screw that. Herpes is fiction. Okay, Rebecca. I'm confused by the last one, the gold and silver plating thing. Can't be achieved with modern technology. So you're saying that, I mean, because modern technology includes ancient techniques that we know and understand so you're saying that there's like a we we found something that was plated in a way that we have no idea how to reproduce it or just that like 
we haven't done any better using... We can't reproduce it today with all the technology at our disposal. That seems weird to me. Like, like surely in 2,000 years, we didn't completely forget how to, like, what these techniques were. So I, I'm going to go ahead and say that that one's the fiction. That seems really weird to me. The, the pot one improves sleep quality. Maybe, I don't know. That one seems kind of fictional to me too, just because I feel like pot makes you sleep too much, which doesn't make you more alert. It would make you more sluggish, but I don't know. Maybe occasional use, it helps with your sleep. So I don't know. The, but the plating thing seems wronger to me. So I'm going to go with that. And Evan. Marijuana increasing alertness. Now it says probably through improved sleep quality. So I think they've detected that the results are that it increases alertness. They think through sleep quality. They're not a hundred percent sure. I think therefore that one's leaving some room open to be science. Herpes simplex virus. Bob, you talked about earlier in the episode mentioned, assuming it makes the cut about uh, viruses, you know, being under pressure and sort of blasting the neighbor nucleus of cells and so forth. So I thought that was a little apropos. But it is eight times higher than a car, eight times higher pressure than a car tire. Wow. That's hard to think. I mean, wouldn't those things be like so <laughs> like bursting at every little move or thing that it comes in contact with, I think, at that point? So I'm thinking that that one's fiction. However, the last one. Rebecca, like you said, how do you lose technology? What's different that only existed 2,000 years ago that no longer exists today? I'll say it's the herpes one. I just don't think the pressure can, can hold it in and it, and have the virus survive and get around like it does under those conditions. All right. So the boys are thinking that herpes simplex virus under pressure is the fiction. Rebecca, you think that the gold and silver plating is the fiction. But you all agree that a recent study finds that occasional marijuana use increases alertness, probably through improved sleep quality, is science. You all think that one is true. And that one is the fiction. Oh, my gosh. A sweep. Yeah, I haven't had one in a while. Oh, that's been a long time. Bastard. Well, yeah. you say, man, this stuff is good, man. <laughs> so what uh, the recent study shows is that – this is a study in mice. That, that really doesn't have they much got, to they, do. They got mice high, Steve. They got mice high. Better than getting cancer. When they, ex- mice? When they exposed teenaged mice to cannabis. <laughs> Rebellious little bastards. That that uh, had a detrimental effect on their brain function, which persisted into adulthood. Uh, you mean, t- Steve, you mean teenage equivalent mice. Yes. Right? Yeah, the equivalent of a teenage mice. So they're the, the same developmental stage. Their brains are not fully matured yet. Like we know with humans, human teenagers, their brains are not, they do not behave, do not function like fully adult brains. They're still developing. So during that phase, uh, marijuana use apparently can disrupt brain function and that disruption can occur even into adulthood if this mouse study extrapolates to humans. Who knows? So that was the study that uh, inspired this. But because I invoked uh, the effects of marijuana on sleep, I also just did some research to see, well, what what do we know about that? And it's actually really complicated. Marijuana is a very complicated drug. So we don't really know what the net effect is on sleep. But the studies that we do have show that it, it may increase sleep duration 
uh, but it it actually may worsen sleep quality. It decreased REM sleep. It may decrease deep sleep and have convert deep sleep into lighter sleep. So you have which is what alcohol does too. Alcohol right? does that absolutely. Benzodiazepines do that. So not exactly the same effect, but it, it, the, the evidence suggests maybe it might hurt sleep quality, although it increased sleep duration. Most of the studies I found were on marijuana withdrawal. So if you use it on a regular basis, then you stop cold turkey. That definitely disrupts sleep. But just using it seems to – the effects are more complicated. But there's nothing showing that it actually increases alertness. That part I totally made up. All right. Damn. Item number two. So obviously these next two are science. Scientists have discovered that the herpes simplex virus is packed under pressure eight times higher than a car tire and uses that pressure to blast its DNA into the nucleus of cells. That one is science. Very cool. Not the first time this was discovered in a virus, but the first time it was discovered in a virus that infects humans. This research was done by Alex Uwilovich and colleagues. Um, and they were, they were specifically looking for you know, aspects of the viral life cycle um, other than protein synthesis that could uh, be a target for antiviral drugs. Viruses are hard to treat partly because their life cycle is so simple, but also because they can mutate very quickly. So if you, you know, you target certain regions of the virus are highly variable and, and they mutate even throughout an infection. So they can evade the immune system and they can evade um, drugs, they can become resistant to drugs very quickly. So they were looking for aspects of the life cycle that did not evolve, involve specific proteins. That this is something that they found. The, the, uh, part of the virus that contains its DNA, which is called the capsid, they actually were able to measure the pressure inside that thing and found that it, it had this very high pressure, uh, and that the capsid explodes, blasting the DNA into the nucleus of cells. They actually saw that happening. So, um, yeah, that, that one is very interesting and very true. And, Rebecca, just like with your news item, this may one day lead to drugs that can treat the herpes simplex virus. <laughs> so, sure, yeah, this one's a little bit more of a, of a plausible connection, but they have to make that connection, right? Um, so that was very interesting. And no, no, it wasn't. Third one, a new analysis <laughs> finds that 2,000-year-old techniques for gold and silver plating produced results that cannot be achieved even with modern technology. That one is also science. So the reason that we can't do it today is because the ancient artisans were just so damn good. Uh, and nobody has that skill today. You know, it's a, it's a no. lost skill, you know. So we do easier methods. Certainly, I've seen some guys on YouTube, though. Some cheaper and easier methods, but, but they don't produce. <laughs> uh, and the quality is in terms of the thinness and the uniformity of the covering of, like, gold or silver around a base or a core. Um, they combine it with, with mercury. They use mercury kind of like as a glue to gild jewels, statues, mm-hmm. amulets, uh, with gold or silver. They got really, really good at it. And the coatings that they produced were, were thin and very uniform. And the modern techniques that we have cannot reproduce that quality. And why was the record destroyed or? No, how, it's just, how, it's just, a, you know, lose? these craftsmen spent their life perfecting the skill. Nobody does it today because you could do it much more cheaply and easily with simpler techniques, but the results are not quite as good. So you're telling me a robot can't do it as well as a human? Hey, this is what the article says. I didn't specifically mention robots, (laughs) Rebecca. I'll grant you that. Robots do everything better. (laughs) 
<laughs> Steve, Steve, what about what about techniques like uh, the things like vapor deposition, where where, yeah. sci- where scientists oh, yeah. can, can lay down like an at, an atom thick layer? <laughs> they, they specifically said like t- techniques that are used to produce modern CDs, you know, DVDs, those kind of coatings. They're not as as good as what these ancient artisans were able to produce. So was this I know a study commissioned by the ancient artisans and others? <laughs> it's, yeah, and and cupcake bakers union. Yeah, it's interesting. They, these uh, artifacts were studied with uh, X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy and scanning electron microscopy, combined with energy dispersive spectroscopy. Is there a bit of a fudge factor here for you know determining like which is better or which is you know? A- higher quality person. I mean, there's a judgment call. Yeah, but they have parameters. You know, they have criteria, uniformity and thickness of the coating. So, yeah, those last two items both surprised me, which is why they're good science and fiction items. So, congratulations, uh, Steve. Steve. Hey, I'm only as good as the news items that I can find, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jay, give us a quote to end the show this week. This was a quote sent in by a listener who has a single name, Nemo. And the quote is, he is a barbarian who thinks the customs of his tribe are the laws of nature. Any guesses? Who said it or who he's referring to? Um, who said it and then who wrote it? Was it, uh, is that uh, Conan the Barbarian? Kind of in a strange way, a little close. Not that bad, Steve. Can you read it again? Cormac MacArt. He is a barbarian who thinks the customs of his tribe are the laws of nature. That's uh, Caesar from Caesar and Cleopatra, Act 2, by George Bernard Shaw. Hmm, cool. George Bernard Shaw, November died November 1950, was an Irish playwright and a co-founder of the London School of Economics. Very interesting. So, Jay, uh, before we close out the show this week, let's mention the fact that we have redone the SGU website. Took us, what, about a year? Yeah, I'd like to thank Joel and Jeremy for helping us do the project. It took a long time just because... We have limited funds and all that, and um, it was a lot of work. You know, we we cleaned out a lot of stuff. We we put a lot of time and energy into rethinking how we want it. We moved it to a WordPress WordPress platform. Very very happy with how things turned out. Yeah, it looks great. Uh, really appreciate those guys working on the on the website for us. Uh, and we are with the, along with the new website. I'll say by the way, first, if you in, do encounter any bugs with the website, just let us know because we are in the process of troubleshooting and bug fixing right now. It works, but you know, occasional little bugs are cropping up. But uh, along with launching the new website, we are launching launching our new membership program. Now, for a while now, we've had the option of making recurring donations to the SGU for those who wish to to sponsor or support the SGU. But now we are converting that into SGU membership. And there are various membership levels described on the website. Just go to the Become a Member section of our website and you'll see that. At the $8 a month level and above, we are offering something new, and that is exclusive access to SGU premium content. Uh, we will be, we do generate a lot of extra content each week, either just segments that never make the cut, long versions of segments that we had to cut down, the full length interviews where we, we're using less than half of the interview. Um, and we're going to be going out of our way to make sure that we're recording extra content each week. Uh, for example, this week we recorded an extra segment on a recent proposal on a mission to Mars. So this extra content, about 10 to 20 minutes per week or so, uh, is going to be available to SGU members as a thank you 
for supporting the SGU. Yeah, when you go to the member subscription page, pay close attention to the different levels that we came up with. We used science fiction as a huge influence on the different levels that we came up with. Like As an example, the $8 a month level is the damned dirty ape level. And the $12 a month level is the Cylon level, and it just keeps going like that. So we had a lot of fun coming up with these different things, and the imagery is fantastic. Yeah, it's really fun. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining me again this week. Thank Thank you, Steve. Sure, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. That's HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. Or just go to our homepage and there will be a link right there for you.